All right, well, we come to Daniel chapter 12 and verses 5 to 13. And I don't know what happened, but all of a sudden, there's an end in my Bible. There's a space there. Does that mean we're getting to the end of Daniel? Wow. I mean, it seems like just yesterday we started. Or maybe it was 45 or 50 messages ago. I don't know. I may have lost track. I may not be a good focus in that particular perspective, but I am so thankful for the privilege that we've had to come together and do this. And here as we come to our final section of Daniel, if you'd turn there in your Bibles, Daniel chapter 12 and verses 5 to 13, we're going to see a focus on assurance. On assurance. Such an important thing for us. Uh, assurance and the recognition of what it means to us in our daily lives, assurance and what it means to us in our understanding of the gospel, and particularly assurance in our understanding of what it means in our salvation. You know, as we see the things going on, and I prayed and I prayed for our sin and I pray for my sin every day and throughout the day, and I hope you do the same. You know, it can, it can be wearisome, can't it? I hate that battle. I, 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 sometimes I just, I rejoice for those who the Lord calls home for Ray and others. But yet at the same time, you know, we have, we have work to do here and he's called us to this and to recognize that, that Christ understands that he has cast his love and affection upon us, even knowing all of those sins, knowing all of those which we've done. And I'm so glad I can't remember them all. And yet knowing all the ones that we will yet still do. And God has loved us through all of this. And what amazing and important assurance that is. And we again see this tonight because Daniel is scared. We elaborated this in chapter 12 and have continued to do so. His understanding of Israel's judgment began in chapter 10. Remember this vision of Daniel chapter 12 is actually three chapters long, 10 through 12. And at the beginning of Daniel chapter 10, Daniel is just knocked out. I mean, he can't get off his face, he can't speak, he is overwhelmed because the 70 years of judgment from Jeremiah that he thought was coming to a close then turned into this vision of 70 weeks, which we know was each week was seven years. So that turned into 490 years of judgment and more because there was a break that was undefined that we saw clear back in chapter 9. So no big surprise that at the end of the cutting off of Messiah that there would be a break before the 70th week. And now he recognizes that that break is going to take it all the way through to the end times. So the nation of Israel will be in continual turmoil and judgment until the end times. And Daniel's just overwhelmed by this. And this idea of assurance is embedded in our title, which I've titled, How Do You Know? How do you know? The question alludes to Daniel's great concern. How do I know, Lord? And in our first point, as we looked at last week, a question of personification, we saw two aspects of personhood. The first being the change in speakers in the text. That is... That up until that point, from early in chapter 10 all the way through chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12, our speaker was the angel Gabriel. And then it switched. 
And that was the first personification. Now our author, Daniel, became the speaker. And the second issue was in the identification of the persons, namely the three individuals shown to us in these verses that we looked at and that we were speaking about in verses 5 and 6. And we saw that the man dressed in linen was the pre-incarnate Christ, second person of the Trinity, and that the other two standing on each side of the river, angelic beings, were most likely Gabriel and Michael. Not dogmatic about that, um, not gonna, uh, not a hill to die on, but almost certainly the individuals that we're speaking about. And halfway through verse 6 was our second point. We transitioned from this idea of a question of personification to a question of proclamation, which was asked and answered, or did ask and answer the question, how long? How long until it occurs? But it was really not so much how long until it occurs, but rather how long will it last? And the answer was three and a half years in verse 7. Time and times and half a time, which we've seen before in Daniel 7, which we've seen in Revelation, and that throughout Scripture is a reference to three and one half years. A time, a single year, times two years, making for a total of three, and half a time, three and a half years. And all of that, the beginning of the Great Tribulation. And that's what all of this focus is as we got to chapter, or verse 36 of chapter 11 onward. It's the Antichrist and all of the details associated with that and particularly his reign during the second half of the tribulation known as the Great Tribulation. And this is not, as we saw there, not only is it three and a half years, but also, per verse 7, until the power or the hand, as we discussed, of the Jewish people is shattered. This is not the destruction of the nation, but it is the crushing of their pride and self-sufficiently, self-sufficiency, excuse me, so that they'll accept Jesus as Messiah. And this is what has to happen to every person, isn't it? We have, to, we have to crush our pride. We have to crush our self-sufficiency. We have to realize that in and of ourselves, We're not as great as we think we are. In fact, we're not great at all. In fact, there's, as Romans 3.10 tells us, nothing good that dwells in us. There's no one that seeks after God. Not one. Isaiah 64.6 tells us that all of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. So we've got to crush that pride. We've got to get rid of the self-sufficiency. We have to realize that we are fully and totally dependent on Jesus Christ for everything that we have. And we have to do it every day. Because that pride, it just keeps coming back. You know, keep looking in the mirror and going, yeah, okay, there's something there. No, there's nothing. There's nothing. So as we consider, again, our title, How Do You Know? We understand the who and the when. And now we continue with our next point to see the fruition of our theme. And I've given the theme four aspects of the great tribulation to solidify your confidence, your assurance. We've seen the first two points and we'll continue now with our third point, which is a question of persistence. 
a question of persistence. Let's read our whole section just to set our context and then we'll come back and start talking in verse 8 in our third point. Follow along as I look, Daniel 12 beginning in verse 5. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others were standing, one on this bank of the river and the other on that bank of the river. And one said to the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be until the end of these wonders? I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And as soon as they finished shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. As for me, I heard but could not understand. So I said, my Lord, What will be the outcome of these events? He said, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. Many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. But as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. So in verse 8, as we consider this third point, the question of persistence, Daniel is again speaking. We saw that he was speaking back in verse 5. That was, for, that was part of our first point, the question of personification. And then we have the angel asking the man in linen, the pre-incarnate Christ, the second person of the Godhead, the question. And throughout the rest of that section through verse 7, it is the Lord that is speaking. And now Daniel returns and asks the question. And as he does so, he tells us that he doesn't understand. He's wondering about all of these matters. How will they impact the Jewish nation? He's still overwhelmed from the vision. So how do I put this together, Lord? How do I understand these things? Because I can't. Surely he understood the three and a half years. We previously discussed this. This was addressed in Daniel, to Daniel in Daniel 7.25. And he would quickly recognize this as half of the final seven years of the last week of Daniel, of Daniel 70 weeks as described in Daniel 9.27. It was very clear and well laid out and very, very easy to understand. And Daniel 9.27 further described the violation of the treaty with Israel halfway through the 70th week, which then signified the entry into the great tribulation, the last three and a half years. That, of course, being that first three and a half years leaving, three and a half years remaining. But what he didn't understand is how this all reconciled with Israel's shattering in verse 7. And also their rescuing back from verse 1. How does that work? Their 
power is shattered in verse 7. But in verse 1, they were to be rescued. They were to be saved. So how do those two coincide? And Daniel just can't get his mind wrapped around this. So the question of persistence is Daniel's persistent desire to have answered the question of our title. How do you know? And in verse 9, the man in linen, the second person of the Godhead and the pre-incarnate Christ, answers Daniel. Jim Roscup's notes, or Jim Roscup notes rather, that the Lord's answer is one of gentleness and compassion, trying to put his fears to rest and to put him at ease. Verse 9 repeats the details of verse 4. That is the Lord's addressing of Daniel there. Namely, the, the rest of the matters are sealed and to be concealed. Now this doesn't mean when it says that the matters are sealed and concealed. Daniel asks for more information. God repeats the information from verse 4 to Daniel. It doesn't mean that no one's ever going to look at it again. Of course. We're looking at it. Tens of thousands and countless faithful have looked into it to understand. So that's not what the meaning of this is. It's not that until the end times, this will be sealed up. And it also doesn't mean that no more detail of these events will be given. Because we know from Zechariah, from the Lord's word himself in the Olivet Discourse, from Paul's word in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, from Peter's word in 2nd Peter, from John's word in the book of Revelation, that much more information will be forthcoming about it. But what it does mean is that as far as Daniel is concerned, at this time and in this place, in the 6th century BC, these words are completed and no more new information is forthcoming. We'll see this further confirmed at the end of our text in verse 13. Verse 10 gives us further detail, but it is not new information. As verse 9 showed that this vision was sealed and concealed. Rather, it shows that there will be a remnant. God always has a remnant. Fascinating to recognize that just uh, a few weeks back at the Shepherds Conference, 5,000 men gathered to hear various speakers focus on that aspect of a remnant. And what a joy it is to understand that, that no matter what we see, that God is always carrying through his faithful. Remember Elijah? As he had done this amazing work against Ahab and Jezebel wants to kill him. And so after he has taken out all of the prophets of Baal and he hears that she is after him, he freaks out and he runs and he runs a long, long way and, and, he, and he hides and when the Lord comes to ask him, what are you doing, Elijah? What are you doing hanging out in the cave after I've just empowered you to defeat and to destroy 450 prophets of Baal? And he goes, Lord, Lord I'm faithful, but I alone am left. It's only me. And the Lord says, no, Elijah, <laughs> I have kept 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. So, you know, and God has always got his remnant. So in the remnant, we see some things about them. We see that these, these that are the faithful will be purged and purified and refined. Literally, 
in the Hebrew text, it says they will be sifted out, made white or cleansed and refined. This is exactly what Daniel 11.35 referenced also. So also Zechariah 13.9 references this same detail where two-thirds of the nation of Israel will be punished and destroyed, but the one-third faithful remnant will be brought through. This refining aspect is an indication that, that the way that we grow is through tremendous trials, through fire. That's, that's what we're speaking about here. This is an assaying term where gold or silver or precious metal are boiled and heated such that the dross comes to the top and then they are scraped out so that the metal becomes more pure. This is the refining action. This is what we see described in texts like uh, James chapter 4. In James 4 and 8 we read, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your heart, you double-minded. Where we are called to, in fact, purify, to cleanse, to put ourselves into that refining situation. Uh, in Second Peter and verse 1 Excuse me, Second Peter 1 and, cha- and verse 9, we read the following. Second Peter 1 and 9. For he who lacks these qualities, he's just gone through this list of, uh, of different spiritual disciplines. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Our sins have been purified. They have been removed from us. God has done this. God has taken them and placed them upon his son. And this was Jesus suffering on the cross to bear the sins of the world. More of this in in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22 where the apostle writes in 1 Peter 1 and 22, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. So there's this purification that has to be ongoing in our lives and is exactly what was going to happen to the faithful of Israel. It also shows that the wicked will continue in their wickedness. Because of that, they will not understand. Notice this is the same connotation that we see at the end of Scripture in Revelation 22.11. And we read in Revelation 22.11, Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. And the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And the one who is holy still keep himself holy. And there's a beautiful structure that's ongoing that very rarely do you get the privilege of seeing in the scripture other than a few places in the Psalms. And it's called a chiasm. A chiasm, and it's named after the Greek letter key or chi, and it's an X. And what happens with that X is that there are parallel components at the outside of the X, and as they come together where the X crosses, you get to the main point. And you see that if you look closely at verse 10. Look at it with me. Notice on the outsides, we have these parallels of the many being purged, purified, and refined. These are the righteous. And then at the end of the verse, at the other end of the chiasm, 
And, but those who have insight will understand. Just inside of that coming from the bottom, notice the same verb understand being used. None of the wicked will understand. And at the top above it, the wicked will still act wickedly. The righteous are being purified. They're being refined. They're being clean. They're being prepared. And they will have understanding. The wicked continue in their wickedness. And they will have no understanding. And this is the center of our chiasm. The wicked will continue to do wickedly and they will be judged for it. Some stunning verses in Ezekiel chapter 3 and 33 that focus on the watchman on the wall. Very, very important passage in Ezekiel. And he talks about how if the wicked turn from their wickedness and turn to righteousness, that they will be saved. But if the righteous turn and they begin to live in wickedness, that they will perish just as the wicked did. And Ezekiel's job as the watchman is to warn them. So we recognize this aspect of, this is not like, okay, God has, has put you in this place and, and he has saved you and you are all good to go and you can go live however you want. It's just what I was speaking about on Sunday with regards to the free grace movement. That we can get saved and just go on and sin however we want, all that we want, because Christ paid the price. No! No, we have to live in righteousness because the wicked will continue in their wickedness. And they will not have understanding. The, again, such an important and neat grammatical structure to actually see in our English text. And it affirms for us that the salvation and rescue promised in verse 1. So our final point, drum roll please. Thank you. Our final point of our text and of our book, I've titled, A Question of Particularity. A Question of particularity. Verse 11 draws us again to the end of the sacrificial system, which occurs with Antichrist breaking of the treaty and exalting himself as God. Details from Daniel 9:27 and 11:36 to 45 confirm these aspects. Antichrist's work and his setting up of a treaty and then violating it Exalting himself as God, which launches the great tribulation and which shows us then the final three and a half years. And at this time, the abomination of desolation will be set up. And we've spoken briefly about what that might be. And we don't have an exact indication. We know that it was somewhat, uh, there was a precursor of it with Antiochus IV Epiphanes when he brought the statue of Zeus into the second temple and set it up to be worshipped and sacrificed unclean animals, pigs and other things inside the temple on the holy altar and that this was that abomination of desolation. We don't know. There is a, a, a pretty good understanding that this will be a similar situation with Antichrist setting up a statue of himself inside the Holy of Holies in what will become the third temple, not yet constructed, although all of the accoutrements and all of the furniture for that third temple is already built and in storage in Jerusalem, awaiting that temple. So it could happen at any moment. 
And there is, as we discussed, space on the Temple Mount next to Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Golden Dome for that temple to physically be placed. Many believe, and I would be one of them, that it is that establishment and that allowance by Islam to build a temple for the Jews that is the foundation of the treaty that Antichrist will create such that that can occur because obviously that could not occur today without probably wholesale world war. So we'll have that abomination that desolation will be set up but first we need to try and identify what is meant at, at the end of verse 11 and into verse 12. So let's reread those verses. Look again at Daniel 12 and verse 11. From the time of the regular sacrifice excuse me, from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. The regular sacrifice are the morning and evening sacrifices of the Mosaic Covenant that Antichrist Treaty allows to be reestablished in the new third temple that will be built. Then we further see, in addition to the sacrifices, there is the abomination of desolation set up. And then we have these two time frames. 1290 and 1335 days. And you know, as an engineer, as all that I have put you through over two years, all of the numbers and all of the fun I've had in giving you tons of detail about numbers. Well, we got just a little more to round out our time in Daniel. We've previously addressed that per the Jewish reckoning, three and a half years, as in the English system, is 42 months. Three and a half times 12 is 42. And we also know that per the Jewish reckoning of time, a month is 30 days. So 42 months of 30 days, and you can get out your phone, is 12, no, don't get out your phone, is 1260 days. Take my word for it. I've run the numbers again today to make sure they didn't change. 1260 days is 42 months, is three and a half years, and those exact terms are used in the book of Revelation. Three and a half years, times, times, and half a time, 42 months, and 1260 days. Specifically indicated in the text. In case we had to wonder about the math, that's how that all comes out. And scripture tells us that. So why 30 days more? Or 1290 days? What could be going on here? And then 45 days more than that, or 1335 days? Now, in all of my study of Daniel, I have never seen commentators so scattered as on this issue. I mean, this is like a a, a 12-gauge shotgun with a a wide-open choke, you know, and you're shooting at a, a, a target 50 yards away, and you get about two BBs in it, and everything else is just gone. And there is almost no agreement regarding this. But in studying all of the different details and probably 10 or 12 commentaries, I think that I have a pretty good idea to give to you that reflects the scholarship of these individuals. So the explanation that best accords with scripture 
is that the first 30 days is the time of judgment per Matthew 25 that is following Christ's return in Revelation 19. Turn with me to Matthew 25. Matthew 25 and verse 31. Matthew 25 and 30, verse 31. This section, of course, is the conclusion of the Olivet Discourse. Jesus' preaching and teaching on the end times. And all that would happen in that. And it, it is this understanding that this is the point at which Christ has returned per Revelation 19. And what we see in our text is what's called the judgment of the nations. And in Revelation, it occurs after Jesus' return in Revelation 19, in Revelation 20, verses 4 to 6. And it is paralleled with the imprisonment of Satan. So the judgment of the nations that we're going to read about in Matthew 25, 31. And what I believe the period of this 30 days is all about is what Jesus is referring to in Matthew 25, 31, where it says... But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him. When's that break? Revelation 19. That's His coming to conquer His enemies. You can go back and look at that. You can come the next two weeks because as we finish Daniel, where we're going to go next for two weeks is we're going to go to Revelation 19. This all points to Christ's return and we're going to go there. So make sure you're with us. So, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then, so a time afterwards, chronological indicator, then He will sit on His glorious throne. So He comes and conquers and now He's on the throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates, excuse me, shepherd separates, easy for me to say, the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat and I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink and I was a stranger and you invited me in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For a little refresher on that, go look at Matthew 7, 20 to 23. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. 
they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is Christ's coming. This is his judgment. This is not, this is not the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20 and verse 11 and forward. This is, again, the judgment of the nations. And what's being spoken about here is that after Christ has come, after he has conquered his direct enemies, there will be many who will say, oh, Lord, I was duped into it. You know, and he will gather all of those that are alive and remaining, and he will separate them into the sheep and the goats, the righteous and the unrighteous, and he will judge them. And commentators that I believe have the best understanding of this state that it is in that 30-day period that he will be gathering all those from across this earth that yet still remain after the tribulation and bringing them before himself as he sits on his throne to stand in judgment of them. And in so doing, they will then be judged and there is the resurrection of the righteous, which we saw back in Daniel 12, 2. And then there will later at the great white throne judgment be the second resurrection, which is not just the second as we discussed. You can go back and listen. But it is rather the resurrection of the unrighteous to eternal torment. So this same scene is also detailed for us that I just read in Matthew 25 in Ezekiel chapter 20 in verses 33 to 38. So you good Bereans, you go home and dive into the book of Ezekiel, look at 3 and 33 for the watchman on the wall, and look at Ezekiel 20, and these verses, verses 33 to 38, and you'll see the same thing. So that's what we see in what I believe best accords with an understanding of the 30 days. It begins the 1260 days and the 1290 and the 1335 all begin at the same point at the midpoint of the tribulation. It's not an ambiguous point. It doesn't move a little bit. That's where it starts. And it goes 30 days after Christ comes and returns. And then there is another 45 days after this. And what seems most plausible to this are really there's two suggestions that have come forward. And, and I don't like to give you two suggestions. I, I, I would prefer to be dogmatic. That surprises you, doesn't it? <laughs> no. Um, but it just, this is a, a more difficult one. And although there are about eight or ten different considerations, there are two that come to the surface as both being possible. One is by commentator Leon Wood. And that is that this 45-day period is where the new government of Messiah would be established. That is the setting up first of the boundaries of the nation of Israel. So, so important. Goes all the way back to Genesis 15, 18 and the Abrahamic covenant. God told Abraham exactly how big his land would be. How big Israel would be. Never, mark this, never during David, during Solomon, during any time in Israel's history have they possessed that much of the land. From the Red Sea to the River Euphrates. Never have they had that much land. 
But they will, and this will be that fulfillment. So they have to establish that boundary, says Wood. They'll have to establish the particulars of that government. And we see scripture talking about an ongoing government. So offices and individuals and all of these things which will be set up. Perhaps also during that time, the construction of the millennial temple from Ezekiel 40 to 48. Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48. That's a pretty good solution. But I think the next one is better. The second proposal by Charles Lee Feinberg, who is one of the finest scholars uh, of Jewish descent, uh, a Messianic Jew, was the president of uh, Talbot Theological Seminary, was the uh, primary mentor of John MacArthur. And he suggests that 45 days is the period of the final celebration of the Feast of Booths. Keep in mind that the final celebration of the Levitical Feast, all of the Levitical Feasts have been fulfilled at Jesus' first advent, except two, the Feast of Trumpets and the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Trumpets is where Jesus will call Israel back to himself. Where does that happen? We read about it. It's at the beginning of the Great Tribulation. It's Revelation 7 and 14, and the identification of the 144,000 witnesses, and the rest of faithful Israel that will follow them. Those that will be, as Daniel said, like shining stars. So that is the fulfillment of the Feast of Trumpets. And Feinberg says that the final 45 days will be the fulfillment of the Feast of Booths. And what is the Feast of Booths about? It is about the nation of Israel dwelling with God in the wilderness. And so they make these booths out of different grasses and palm leaves. And they live in them for a week. Well now, Jesus is living with them. So they are fulfilling that final feast in this 45 days. Fantastic to recognize this consideration and for some scripture, because if there's no scripture to back it up, then throw it out the window. Go read Zechariah chapter 14 and verses 16 to 21. Zechariah 14, 16 to 21. How many times in the last four weeks have we talked about Zechariah 9 to 14? A lot. If you've not read it yet, go read it. And the conclusion of it tells us exactly what this is about. And I think that's what's being spoken about here. And whatever these periods are, they will, as we saw back in Daniel 12, 4, be revealed fully Only at that time. And for those individuals that are there. This is a part. Doubtlessly not all. But this is a part of the vision. That is sealed. And concealed. And whatever they are. It was God's predetermined plan. And foreknowledge. That they would be required Exactly as it was his predetermined plan and foreknowledge that sent his son Jesus Christ to the cross to bear our sins. Daniel 12, 13 closes 
a beautiful admonition from the Lord where it says in Daniel 12 and 13, but as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. The Lord's comment to go your way to the end is not a harsh rebuke. It is, it is a gentle encouragement to persevere until his time on earth ends. If you go back to September early of 2022, in our first message, we began talking about how old Daniel was, and it clearly indicates that when we look at the text, at uh, the way he was described as a youth, probably of 13 or 14 years, and all of our chronology since then, we see Daniel somewhere likely in his mid-80s. So his time on earth is closing. He has received the visions. They are now sealed and concealed. He will get no more information from the Lord about them. And so the Lord tells him, persevere until your time on the earth has ended. And then he says, enter into your rest. Enter into rest. Rest is the peace and rest of struggles of this life, as Tanner notes. And what a peace and a rest that will be. To be done wrestling against sin. To be done wrestling against the darkness of the world around us. The muck and mire that we wade through all day long. Seeking to be lights in this dark world. Then, after that, we see the next admonition. That you will rise again for your allotted portion. The rising is God's confirmation to Daniel that the resurrection that he told him about in the vision and that Daniel 12 two talks about, he would partake in. What a great comfort. Daniel, this thing's a mess. And your people, man, they're going to be in it for a long time. But the resurrection is coming for the faithful to be with me. And the resurrection is coming for the wicked to be ever separated from me. And his allotted portion is his reward as the faithful man, which doubtlessly is per Daniel 3, will be him shining as the stars of heaven, as all those of Israel who are faithful, as all those who are faithful to God will be, will receive their reward and will shine in those things. Such an incredible picture for us. Daniel has consistently been a picture of how beloved we are to live our lives. How we deal with adversity. How we prioritize our worship of God. How we know and rely upon the truth of his word. Reflect on how many times in this book Daniel talks about knowing God's word. How did he know about the 70 years of Jeremiah from Jeremiah 25.10? He knew the word. He studied the word. By the way, pretty amazing considering Daniel and Jeremiah are writing concurrently. And already he knows about it. Because he is a student of the word. How about us? And so it is here at the final verse. We too must give an account to God for our lives. This is what Romans 14.12 tells us. We will stand before God and we will tell him what we did with this life he has given to us. As men, 
You will stand before God, not only for your own life, but for the wives. And if you have been blessed with children, how you have dealt with those. Even more daunting for those of us that have sought to lead a church, we will stand before him to give account for the lives of all of those whom we have stood over to say, thus saith the Lord and sought to lead and guide and grow. We must give an account. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 5, 9 to 10, that we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That is the Bema seat. And that we will, as we do, be examined per 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And that, like Daniel, we must be continuously striving to be conformed more into the image of Christ. 1 John 3 and verses 1 to 2. Beloved, we must each pursue each and every day and even each and every moment of each day to be more holy, to be more like Daniel, to be more like Christ, and to continue to repel the things of this world. My closing exhortation from this incredible book and this great study to each of you and to myself is a title from another book that I loved, Dare to Be a Daniel. Dare to be a Daniel. Father, we praise you for what you have shown to us. We praise you for the kindness, for your love and grace, for your mercy in revealing these amazing truths. Father, we don't understand it all because you've told us that it's not yet all revealed. And we're fine with that. We, we rest in your sovereignty and your glory and in the incredible revelation that you've given to us in this book. Strengthen us, Lord, to grow in holiness. Strengthen us to understand, Father, that you have given this to us so that we would know so that we would have assurance regarding Christ's return, so that we would have confidence in your promises. You didn't need to give us this special gift, telling us that it was so should be enough for all of us, but you know us, Lord, you know we are feeble and weak and we quickly wander. Help us to grow close to you as we understand more about what you've done. Help us to treasure more your word. Help us to study the recesses of it, the books that we don't look into, to the minor prophets, to Obadiah, to understand details of the, uh, of the genealogies that are difficult for us, to recognize and embrace and love Leviticus and Numbers, and Father, to just see the cherished goodness in every word that you've revealed. For it is your instruction to us on how we are to live and how we are to love and how we are to reflect you. So help us to do that. Strengthen us to love one another more, to speak about these things with one another and to grow in holiness and all for your glory. And of course, in your providence and blessings, our good. And we give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen.